We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. As far as the Valley Boys go, uh, yeah. Uh, What's the next step for that? How would you like for that to grow uh, with Suns fans' hearts and minds here? I mean, it's a family. Like, it's not, you know, it's going to grow organically. I can't force it to grow. Um, You know, me and DA actually came up with the name just for coming back from a game one day, and it stuck. So, no, I mean, it's just been... It's been a beautiful thing to see, man, because that's the whole city of Phoenix. You know, everybody, we are all Valley boys and girls. It's not just the team. You feel me? It's a, it's a community of people riding behind us at the end of the day. And we'll feel that support and the Valley boys will continue to grow because we'll continue to get better. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast, sponsored by Harry's Razors. Shout out to them this week. My name is Mike Hill, the host. Sam's here too. Hello, Sam. Hey. Let's get right into it. The cheese is cold. <laughs> I wanted to start this week with a cold take of the week segment because it was just such a good week for it. Sometimes the universe decides what you should do, and this week it did. The offseason has sort of rounded out for the Phoenix Suns. We now have Kelly Oubre, Ricky Rubio, Dario Sarge, Aaron Baines. You guys know all the guys. And then the articles started coming out. That's right. Everyone wanting to grade the offseason. And this is more than just Ben Rohrbach. I'm going to call him out by name. That's Ben Rohrbach. Who said this? It is unclear if any of the Suns' deals made them better than they would have been by standing pat and it only cost them a recent lottery pick and four future picks that's right what he said is it is unclear if any of the sun's deals made them better (laughs) 
<laughs> than they would have been had they standed pat. And that includes keeping Josh Jackson, not having a point guard, not having a power forward, and just playing, I guess, like that next season with a very unhappy Devin Booker. More than Ben Rohrbach, what I wanted to do was call out these guys who lazily write about the Phoenix Suns as if they don't think it's important to take the time to actually learn about the offseason moves and actually analyze whether or not they got him bet- got any better. Because what Ben Rohrbach did is he did not do that. He, he shied away from even analyzing it. And he's, instead, he said, it's unclear. I have no idea if they got better or not. That's about as lazy as it gets. Sam, how do you feel about takes like this? Well, they're stupid. Uh, what do you want me to say? <laughs> but, you know, with with Ben Rohrbach, uh, you're the one who destroyed him on Twitter. So I wanted to give you that chance, first of all, to just you should be the one going after him, if anything. Um, but, yeah, these, these guys, you know, they're the types. They probably still think Josh Jackson is like, well, it, it's always funny how the expectations change, right? Like Josh Jackson is not a worthy prospect to some writers until the Suns get rid of him. And then he's like a worthy reclamation project for some team, you know, a diamond in the rough just waiting to be molded to save some team because the stupid sons let him go. In the same way that we saw some people talk about Marquise Chris after the trade with Houston uh, that involved Brandon Knight and Ryan Anderson last summer. And we saw how that turned out for the Rockets. So, you know, we've talked about this a lot, Mike. When you're at the bottom, people kind of want you to stay at the bottom. Uh, Fortunately for them, I don't think the Suns are going to stay at the bottom. And we're going to talk a lot of, more about that with our fabulous guests later on in this episode. Yeah, I think it's it's just kind of odd that they don't take they don't even take the time to actually analyze it at all. It's just and I and I get I will give them credit here. It's hard to analyze every single deal and analyze every single off season for all thirty teams. That's a lot of work, but it is the work that they chose to do. So I think it should be said that they need to put a little more effort in it. And I will give Ben Rohrbeck uh, credit for actually responding on Twitter because I did call him out. I said, is it really unclear that we got better? Is it that crazy that the team without a point guard now has a point guard got better? I think it's completely insane that he said that specifically. But it's not just him. There's there's Justin Verrier who also wrote for The Ringer uh, this last week and basically just panned every move the Suns made, including the Ricky Rubio signing, saying that he's overpaid and not a good fit. And I think there's something to saying maybe he's not the perfect fit for Devin Booker, but it's like they don't even acknowledge that DeAndre Ayton exists and the fact that Ricky Rubio could potentially be the perfect fit for DeAndre Ayton. It's like that doesn't even exist to them. They, they just didn't try. You know, let's not <laughs> let's not try to overanalyze their thinking. I think they just didn't try. It's exactly what you said at the beginning. They're lazy. They were on deadline writing an article about 30 NBA teams. They got to the Phoenix Suns 29th or 30th and thought, fuck it. Let's just finish this off and give him an F. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. An F F is just a huge exaggeration to me. I think it's actually fair to criticize these deals. And I think a lot of people are not looking at the picture as a whole and trying to figure out exactly what the Suns are trying to do as far as clearing out these negative assets. And also, they never really acknowledged the idea of a sunk cost. He just acknowledged Josh Jackson by calling him a recent lottery pick. That's all he did. What he's not saying is he was the worst player in the NBA last year <laughs> and had a negative value on this team, and they wanted to get rid of him so that they didn't have to pay him almost $8 million next year. He doesn't acknowledge it. He just calls him a recent lottery pick because that makes them look worse. 
Maybe he could have said that they traded a player who was very bad, who they shouldn't have drafted in the first place. That's a fair thing to say. They should have drafted somebody else. It's difficult to predict drafts, obviously, but criticizing GMs for that is something that's fair game. Their job is to try and predict the future as it is, and uh, that's a difficult job to do. Um, So what we decided to do is have Tim on. Tim is the founder of the B-Ball Index. It's a very excellent website, very excellent Twitter follow. Definitely check them out. And what we wanted to do is look at these moves using data. So we wanted to take a look at everything through that lens and try and figure out if the Suns got better because what Ben said is it's unclear if they got better. Uh, So Tim is going to come on in just a second and he's going to help us take a look at all these deals and all the players on the Suns and figure out exactly what it looks like through that analytic lens. Um, Before we get to Tim though, Kelly Oubre did officially sign. It's not exactly a lot to talk about as far as the Kelly Oubre deal. It was basically two years, $30 million. Do you have any thoughts on that deal before we get to Tim quickly, Sam? Uh, well, two years, I'm fine with the deal. You know, I, I figured $15 million was probably about what it would take. I figured, you know, getting him for maybe his market value is closer to 12 is what I was thinking. But I, I didn't think you could actually get him to sign for that little. It's just two years threw us all off. Uh, I was definitely expecting a four-year deal. Um, it's a gamble on the part of Kelly. But, you know, maybe... And this is something actually interesting. You know, we didn't go into this with Tim, but according to his data and their models, players hit their peak. It's conventional wisdom that players hit their peak around the age of 28, 29. It's not actually true, at least according to their models. You know, your peak is probably closer to around age 26. At least that's more so your athletic prime. Maybe you get a little bit craftier. Uh, with some veteran experience in old age, I don't know. But Kelly is going to be right around that age. He's going to be 25 when he hits unrestricted free agency two years from now, ready to be theoretically in his prime. So it's a big gamble on his part, but you know maybe it could just pay off. Uh, and if he you know exceeds expectations over the next couple of years, then maybe he could get his $20, 25000000 million a year deal uh, two years from now. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's a good situation for the Suns. We talk about this with Tim a little bit where – Uh, he's trying to prove himself and he really only has two years to prove himself. So, you know, although next year is his contract year, he understands that this short of a deal and even paid a a pretty high amount, like $15 million is not nothing. That's, that's starter money. He has to prove himself in order to be, in order for this to be a smart move for him. Now we talked about it, that 2021 free agency, agency class is stacked. There's a lot of guys in that class and Kelly Oubre will now be going up against them. We talked about the potential of him actually signing his qualifying offer and going into next season, the end of next season as one of the better free agents available, but he didn't do that. He's more betting on himself to improve in those two years and come in uh, to that off season as one of the better players. And we'll see if that happens. I think it's good. It's a good situation for the Suns because the pressure is going to be on him going forward and uh, it'll be interesting to see how he develops because there are areas of his game, as we're going to talk about soon, that need to improve in order for him to even be worth that $15 million uh, that he is now being paid. And I agree with you, Sam. I think a little bit lower than that is likely what he would be worth. But to the Suns, it is worth more to sign him because of what he did for the culture and what he did for the guys that were playing on this team. And those are things that we talk about, too. It's just really difficult to measure with the data that we're going to talk about. So what we're going to do, we're going to bring Tim on in just a second, and he's going to talk to us about how these analytics actually look at the Phoenix Suns. Now, there's a couple things I want to say before we get to Tim. And the first thing <laughs> <Me> is, <too. laughs> yeah, the first thing is, remember that this data is 
comparing these players to the rest of the NBA. So what we're trying to do is look at whether or not the Phoenix Suns improved from last year. At the end of the interview, we're going to talk about the players that we had and the players that are now gone and how terrible they were. Um, and what that means, though, is the Suns are still likely going into next season, as we've talked about on Twitter, Sam and I, as a 30-win team, which still makes them one of the worst teams in the NBA. But that's a massive improvement for the Suns. So even though some of this data points at a lot of these guys as being lower ends of the NBA, they're still much better than the players that we had previously. So it still projects an improvement. So at some points during this interview, it might make you feel kind of sad thinking about what the data actually looks like for some of the players that the Suns have. But remember that it's still an improvement from what we had um, before. What do you want to say, Sam? What I want to say is, uh, guys, this is a really long interview coming up. There's going to be some things that you're going to like hearing, and there's going to be some things that you're probably not going to like hearing. But a couple of points on that. One, every data output from a statistical model comes with a varying, a, a certain level of confidence. No, statisti- uh, no statistician ever claims to have all the answers, and outliers are always possible, both in the positive direction and in the negative direction. So just because you know this is what a projection says a player is going to be doesn't necessarily mean that's what that player is going to be. An example, and Tim will admit this to you himself, last year, B-Ball Index was very low on De'Aaron Fox. This year, B-Ball Index loves De'Aaron Fox, and he was the main reason that Sacramento had a surprising turnaround season that nobody saw coming, including these statistical models. But a second point, we brought in Tim because he tells it like it is. You know, it it would have been easy to bring in analysts who are going to tell you what you want to hear. But this is a guy where his expertise, both on the data level with what he's done for B-Ball Index, which seriously is maybe the best place to get publicly available data that, you know, outside of the proprietary data that teams themselves have access to, this is the best that you can get as a basketball fan if you're truly interested in the statistical side of things. But beyond that, he's a guy with excellent X's and O's experience, worked at the D1 level, designed the team playbooks for uh, NBA 2K, Uh, And you'll see he just has fantastic insight on how to optimize the X's and O's uh, for various teams. So, you know, hopefully you hear him out for for everything he has to say, because not all of the analysis is always going to be pretty. But I think it's very, very insightful. And I think it answers a lot of the questions as to what the Suns uh, might need to solve with their roster construction uh, in the years going forward. Exactly. I think. It's, I know it's optimism season, as I've talked about before, so sometimes it's hard to, for reality to hit you, and it, it can hit you kind of hard when it, when it comes at you, but this is the truth of what the Suns are. They're not a playoff team next year, and if they are, it would be basically a statistical anomaly for them to improve that much, and that would be a really fun season. That's, those are the most fun seasons. There's a reason that we watch the games. It's not like we could just run these data models and, and not watch the games. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason we watch the games, and it's for stuff like that to happen. Um, so, you know, but this is, this is the reality of what they are and what they can be, and that's still probably like a 30 to 35 win team, 35 win team being like the high end of expectations next year, and this is why the future flexibility is so important for this team. So as you listen, just keep that in mind that we are talking about a 31 team and how good they can be and how important it is to have young guys that could potentially improve young guys that we believe in. So we'll switch over to Tim right now. Once again, Tim is the founder of the B-Ball Index. Take a look at their website. Take a look at their Twitter account. Just Google it and you can find us following it. He goes by Cranjus McBasketball online and uh, take a look at his tweets as well. He tweets a lot of good information. So we'll switch over to that right now.
Once again, joining us is the founder of the B-Ball Index, Tim. Tim, how are you doing? I'm excellent, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on. I don't get to talk a lot of Suns basketball, but it's <laughs> an interesting team. And just looking through the data, there are just so many different stories you can tell and different narratives. And it's it's cool to see maybe the hope that's coming, some of the guys who went out the door, and then what this team might look like under Monty Williams and, and how the data plays into all of that. Yeah, you know, I, I really appreciate you actually looking into this for us and joining us, of course. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's interesting. The B-Ball Index is a very interesting site. Lots of information, lots of good tweets you guys have put out. Lots of Suns fans like to share those tweets, especially when they make Mikhail Bridges look really good, which a lot of them did. Uh, what what made you start the B-Ball Index website and what, what is your background to help people understand where you come from? So here? my background is I have three business degrees. Um, I, in college myself, actually ran the analytics for, for the D1 team at my school and got my foot in the door that way. I don't traditionally have any sort of statistics degree or actuarial science or anything like that, but I have a little bit of a data background and I broke into the Twitter world under a, a fake name to keep things separate from, you know, my actual team that I'm, I'm working for and did some writing, started my own podcast, did a bunch of different things. I, I created the playbooks for 2K18 for 20 of the 30 NBA teams. I, I just did a little bit here and there and got to the point where I decided, hey, you know what? I have this, my own uh, data model. We can, we can pick games. We have gambling content. That's actually really good. We've been able to beat Vegas for NBA March Madness and WNBA. I was like, I have that. I've been able to create some of this other data. Why don't I try to put that all together? I, I partnered with Jacob Goldstein, who's our chief analytics officer, because he also had some great data like PIPM that we'll talk about in a little bit. And he had a gambling model. So we're like, hey, let's throw this all together, create our own site, try to hire some good people, have some great data-driven content. And then because our business model is, isn't a normal blog, we're not making money off of ads, we're making money off of people paying, you know, hundreds of dollars a month for gambling stuff. We can afford to pay writers well. So that's how it started. We launched in mid-October. I think it was like a day or two before the season started. And the season went really well. The gambling content held up. Um, we're not driven by clicks. We have no ads on the website. So our success or failure is, is dependent on people finding our gambling models and our data valuable enough to, to pay their own money for. So that's been really cool. And it's been neat to see how our data has really worked its way through the landscape with coaches and teams and fans. And like Suns fans, you're one of the few teams that actually use some of our stats on your team NBA broadcast, like on TV, your, your announcers on there talking about Mikel Bridges and his 98th percentile or whatever it was, perimeter defensive grade. Um, so that was really cool for me to see. We're now at the point where we're working with agents. Mm -hmm. We're working with college uh, D1 teams. Um, so, we're trying to provide as good of data as we can for the public and then also have these these different things on the side because I'm a competitor. I work for a team. I want to help win a championship and we've got a lot of different things going on. But that's what the site is. That's where it came from. And we have a lot of really exciting things coming up uh, by the start of next season. So, Tim, I'm a huge fan of what you guys do. A big believer in it now. And I love going through all the spreadsheets that you offer. Uh, but I think it's fair to say, you know, you guys have come a really, really long way from sort of last summer when you kind of got your start by posting these sort of ominous player grades on Twitter, you know, r ranking these players uh, in various roles uh, and, and assigning a grade to it. At which time, I think, you know, a lot of people at the time, I had no introduction to B-Ball Index back then, and a lot of people still don't. 
kind of didn't understand what was the background behind all that. So maybe as we think about like all of the publicly available data out there these days, uh, you know, what kind of separates your website from from some of that other data out there? What can fans really see uh, as some special insight in the sort of data and models that you guys provide? I'll say that your experience is the same as a lot of people's and, and will be the same as a lot of people going forward. It's it's different information. We're used to seeing, you know, box score stats or we have some impact stats like real plus minus at ESPN that show, you know, when a player's on the court, how, how much better is the team when they're on the court? And we actually have our own stat PIPM, player impact plus minus, that is similar in that fashion. With our talent grades, it's a little bit different. And having categories like perimeter shooting or one-on-one or interior defense, those aren't random acronyms. Those are names of skill sets that we came up with by, you know, working with coaches, professional coaches, working with scouts, figuring out, hey, if we're going to measure 10 to 15 different things, what would be most important? And figuring out, hey, what do we actually have the data to be able to measure? Because there are teams doing what we are doing. And and we know this because we've talked to them with the better proprietary data. And they're able to come up with, you know, 25, 30 categories. We have 11 on the site. And what makes them different is, is they are skill sets. And we're trying to evaluate talent, not just impact, not efficiency. We're looking at performance. And then when we go from performance to talent, we think the big difference there is, is context and situation. So what we will try to do is, you know, hey, maybe your, your performance as a perimeter de- uh, defender is, is this, but after we do all of our adjustments for, you know, who you're defending, not like if, if, if the team's hiding you on defense, we can capture that. If you have Rudy Gobert standing behind you and blocking a lot of shots, but you're not actually doing your job, we can capture that. Or on the offensive end, if you're on a team that has either great spacing or really bad spacing, that's something we're looking at. We have spatial tracking data that can look at that. Um, we're looking at the, the difficulty of the shots that you're taking. So really, we're trying to evaluate how good players are in skill at each of these key skill sets in a <laughs> neutral environment. And then from those scores, from those metrics, this is all data-driven. Nobody's, nobody's sitting at a desk saying, you're an A and you're a C. And, and I think a lot of people, when they see our stuff, initially they just think that's what's happening. But it's all data-driven. We have metric grades that are turned into percentiles. So you can say, hey, this person is in the 95th percentile. That means that their rating was better than 95% of the NBA. And then we convert each of those percentiles to a letter grade. This is something that I did when I ran an analytics department and it was able to get coaches to buy, buy on to what I was doing. Players understood it. You don't have to go through any spreadsheets. It's really simple. We all had letter grades growing up, at least in America. Um, it's simple. It's, it's easy to understand. And I think that should help us moving forward to contextualize information. And that's why you'll see, okay, you know, Devin Booker had an, I don't know, an A one-on-one grade last year, or Mikel Bridges had an A minus perimeter defensive grade or whatever it happens to be. But that's what we're trying to do is evaluate talent. And then the way we represent it will be in those percentiles and those letter grades. First of all, I want to just say I appreciate you acknowledging Donovan Mitchell's overrated defense there. <laughs> I think you're, you're playing to the right crowd uh, with Suns fans. Uh, but th- one of the main reasons we had you on is because there's a lot of people that are giving out off-season grades. And first of all, I think off-season grades are, are mostly kind of uh, 
weirdly subjective because it's all based on how you feel about these guys in the draft who haven't played yet and just there's a lot of perception that's brought into it but what we've noticed as Suns fans is when you're at the bottom of the league whether it be the Suns or other teams that are at the bottom of the league a lot of people don't put a lot of effort into actually grading the offseason moves that you make because the assumption is that it's likely inconsequential because you'll stay at the bottom of the league so we wanted to have you on to actually break down some data on a lot of these moves that the Suns have made and see how you feel about it or what the data says about it more than a feeling, I guess, uh, to quote Boston. Um, first of all, Kelly Oubre had his press conference today, which people loved online. Kelly Oubre is a player that Suns fans love for a lot of reasons. I think he played really well once he got to Phoenix. That was the best stretch of his career so far. He brings a lot of attitude and energy to the team, something that's probably harder to measure with uh, the data that you have. And he signed a two-year, $30 million deal. This is the first time we're actually talking about it on this podcast because it happened since our last episode. What does your data say about Kelly Oubre? How much do you think he's worth and how good do you think he is? So I will, when I talk about, or or when my site evaluates, this was a good deal or this deal had a, I don't know, a 70% chance to return a positive ROI on the money that they paid a player. Those will be based off of our player impact plus minus value valuation. And and PIPM is an impact stat. So if you have a PIPM of plus two, that means that when you are on the court, your team will be expected to score two more points than your opponent per 100 possessions. Um, So it's like ESPN's real plus minus. One of the big differences being that our stat adjusts for luck or variance in data. Um, So like if, if when I'm on the court, opponents shoot 80% from the free throw line, but when I'm off the court, they shoot 70%. I I can't impact that. That's not on me, but it'll impact my raw on-off numbers. So stuff like that will adjust for. Um, I'm getting off track. Our PIPM projections will say, hey, based on your impact per 100 possessions and the minutes we expect you to play, we think that your total aggregate value will be, you know, I don't know, three wins or minus two wins or something like that. And then we'll convert that We'll convert each win into a dollar amount. And based off of that, we expect Kelly Oubre over the next two years, so he's being paid $15 million a year, we expect him to return $18 million total dollars over those two full seasons. So that's not very good. Um, based off of that math, he would have the 14th worst deal in terms of that expected value. And again, this is based off of PIPM. Jacob Goldstein created it. You want to yell at him, yell at him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but if I were to explain a little bit more, when we look at his history in PIPM, and, and this will be accounting for an age growth curve as well. So as guys get older, their expected value will go down a little bit. As they're younger, it'll, you know, the first couple of years in the league, the younger guys, the 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23-year-olds, we expect them to get better. If we look at Ubre's PIPM values, he's never had a single year on the offensive or defensive end where his impact has been above average. Um, his offensive PIPM has risen the past two seasons. It used to be about a, a, a negative three, then it went to a negative one. It's about zero. It's a negative 0.3, or it was this past year. So he's getting, he's running in the right direction. There's, there's a, a positive slope there. Hey, if he continues this, maybe he'll be a, a positive next year. Defensively, he's been pretty stable at a negative one. So overall, he's somebody who our data says when he's on the court, he's not really helping the team compared to what an average player would be expected to give. And that's why he doesn't have a great rating. If you look at our player grades, he's somebody that when you compare to wings who've played at least a thousand minutes, 
he has F grades for perimeter shooting and playmaking, and that doesn't do him all that well. Uh, he's in the 99th percentile when it comes to one-on-one play, so that's something to, to brag about. That's an A grade. Um, he has a C minus finishing, a B plus when it comes to our off-ball movement, so that's like cutting or you know coming off of like pin downs or flare screens, and the, uh, and then he has about average defensive grades in 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 our player talent grade metrics. So not a great player. There's a lot that you can't do with a wing that can't shoot all that well, isn't a good playmaker, um, and it has a little bit below average finishing, but he does have great cutting and one-on-one data, so he can be useful. You just want to make sure you put him in, in the precisely the right role to augment the impact of those strengths and try to mitigate as many of his weaknesses as possible. Yeah, with Ubre, I mean, I guess the question is just, you sort of went into exactly what I was going to ask about there with the player grades. How do you optimize his role in an offense where Devin Booker and DeAndre Aiden are clearly the number one guys? Like, you guys have Ubre listed as his role uh, is a secondary creator. But the word creation, I think, implies some level of playmaking. And as you just went into, Ubre has not been a playmaker for his entire career, but he also doesn't fit into the three and D mold because he doesn't have the three aspect of it down. I think he does have some defensive upside. Um, and I also think he's gotten a lot better as a, a pick and roll finisher in the past year or so. But I guess just, I mean, I, I'm kind of struggling to see. He's kind of a wonky fit with the rest of this roster. And that's why I think, you know, some Suns fans might get upset when they hear $18 million uh, over two years is you know, his expected value as opposed to the 30 million he's actually going to be played. But, you know, I think it does make a lot of sense. Um, do you, Tim, do you have any ideas on like, because I know you're an X and O's uh, guy as well, given all the work you did for 2K, uh, on how you might want Monty Williams to kind of get Kelly Oubre looks in this offense? Yeah, it's it's a tough fit. Like you said, he his role and, and his role listed on our site is secondary creator. That's based off of not saying, hey, this is what his role should be, but that's how he was used last year. So you can see, just like you said, that that's there's there's a, an expected, you know, some sort of playmaking value there for somebody in that position. And when we look at our different offensive roles, I think we have 11 of those. Playmaking is one of the top four in just, just looking at like the weighted average, each, each type of offensive role and then by each of the different player grades they're they're one of the top ones in playmaking usually. So this is somebody put in a position to playmake that doesn't quite have that playmaking prowess. And it's not just like he's a, a C, he's a D minus overall. And, and compared to players that are wings, he's an F. Um, I'm sure he'd be probably even lower than the 13th percentile against secondary creators. So it's it, it was a tough fit, not a great misalignment. Like you said, the three and D isn't quite there. Me as a scheme guy and this is the stuff I love. I have a little bit of a, a data background, but me, for me, working with college teams or AAU high school teams, hell, even 2K. I've, I've worked with, uh, so so creating the playbooks for 2K, but also working with 2K Pro-Am teams to design playbooks for them. Um, figuring out how to make the most out of somebody to, to you know jiggle around the chess pieces to create the, the best offense possible, something I like to do. But this is a tough fit, man. When we look at what he can bring you offensively, so... There's some cutting. We've got a guy that can finish, and he has some one-on-one ability. You want to minimize the opportunity to playmake for him. I'm not going to be putting him in a ton of pick and roll. I'm not going to go stand him in the corner because he doesn't shoot all that well. Overall, he's he's a C shooting grade versus wings with a thousand minutes. He's an F, so it's not like he's an F overall. So he can shoot, 
but not a great use of him. The way I would try to get somebody like him involved would be different opportunities, maybe running off of like an Allen Iverson cut where you're, you're cutting across around the free throw line, trying to get the ball and then turn the corner. Or off of dribble pitches where like the big man has the ball at the elbow, he's at the wing, and the big man almost kind of like dribbles into a position to hand the ball off and simultaneously be setting a screen. Trying to find different opportunities for him to get downhill without giving the defense much time to set up a contain or hedge or anything like that. Um, that's where you need to be creative. I am not all that sure Monty Williams is, is one of the tactically one of the strongest tactical coaches, but I'd be trying to do things like that or even just him setting screens and then, and then cutting off of that could be valuable. He had a B plus uh, post play grade, a B versus wings with a thousand, a thousand minutes played. So this is somebody that if you can have him be setting screens and then get a mismatch and then have him go down low, he can take advantage of that. So that's something you can look at. Um, it might just be a mid post guy or a, somebody that you put on the block and run what we would call a logo screen, which is a, a ball screen for somebody who's already posting up because there isn't really a chance for the defense to hedge that um, or the dump offs really, really easy. So I, I would think he can probably make that read pretty well, or if not, if, if they don't uh, hedge, he can just get to the rim. So those are some ideas floating around in my head, but it's kind of like a, you know, David Nwaba from a couple of years ago type guy where you don't really know how to use him because you can't really use him like a guard or like a wing all that much. He's kind of like a, a big man, but not really a big man. Um, and you just want to have cutting and trying to finish at the rim. You know, I think this uh, underscores how important it is for him to work on that three-point shot, first of all, because playing off the ball when, especially now that Ricky Rubio is on the team, you have ball-dominant guys in Ricky Rubio, Devin Booker, and then, of course, using the number one overall pick on DeAndre Ayton, you would imagine that he's going to demand the ball a lot. Um, and I imagine that the front office will want him to have the ball a lot. So I think that shows how much uh, how important it is for him to work on that shot, but also his creation. And I think a lot of people have been talking about Ubre being one of the guys that is either taken out of the game early and plays a lot with that second unit. And I think that's that's a lot of um, how you talked about using him and how his value is a lot of it is shooting or not shooting, but actually attacking with the ball. Uh, that would be a good role for him to be in in that second unit running a lot being the go-to guy kind of in that second unit and funny enough the way you talked about using him is exactly how Igor Kokoshkov did um lots of those Iverson screens and, and cuts so uh it makes sense and that was the best stretch of his career uh it is kind of funny how far apart the data is from how Suns fans feel about Kelly Oubre at this point I think there is an element of there was a, there was a stretch of games for Suns fans that we all know what I'm going to talk about now. Everyone listening, there was 12 games where the Suns went six and six, and this is when Kelly Oubre was a starter. He averaged 19 points, and his defense was better than it had ever been in his career, to my knowledge. And I, you know, I, I think a lot of Suns fans are holding on to that, thinking that that's going to be the likely out, outcome for him. And I think even Kelly Oubre is uh, as evidenced by this two-year deal. It's a short deal. I think he's counting on himself to improve in a way that. Uh, could show his value later on in his career. And I think for Kelly Oubre, this two years is good for him because he has a chance to make a lot of money. But for Suns fans, it's a great thing too because he really only has two years to show that kind of improvement if he's trying to get that large contract in the future. And that means that 
he understands how vital it is for him to improve as well, just as he talked about in his uh, press conference today. But uh, let's move on to Ricky Rubio. This is another guy that just signed with the Phoenix Suns. This is one of the bigger free agent signings for the Suns in a long time. The Suns have not been very lucky with free agent sign- signings in the past, the biggest ones being Trevor Ariza and Tyson Chandler, who didn't exactly work out very well for the Suns in the last few years. This data seems to say that Ricky Rubio is a pretty good signing for the Suns, right? Yeah, it he's one where it's not, you know, a steal of a bargain, but he got I think it's about 3 years, about 51 million and we have him generating 55 million dollars of value over that that 3-year period. So, just a, a slight excess bit of value um, that he'd be getting you each year. So, Pretty good. Why do you think it shows Ricky Rubio so good? Is it the playmaking? Is it, um, you know, his defense is, is pretty good for his position? What What do you think it shows as a positive impact for Ricky Rubio comparison to like Kelly Oubre, for example? So that, again, has to do with PIPM projections. Um, so as I pull them up, I talk about, you know, at least in our player grades, he's an excellent perimeter defender. He rebounds pretty well. He's a very good playmaker. When we get to his impact in his PIPM, he's somebody who has consistently been a positive on the defensive end. And he's been between average offensively to, you know, a plus one, plus one and a half offensive guy. So, you know, a little bit above average, good defense. I'm sorry, a little bit above average offense, good defense. Um, When you combine that with somebody who can, you know, pass the ball offensively and rebound pretty well, even if he's not a great shooter, he's not, you know, somebody you want to throw out and have isolate if the clock's running down. That's still a useful basketball player. He's got a C finishing grade, um, a B off-ball movement grade. So he can do a lot of different things pretty well. He has one, two, three, four, five, six. He has seven different C grades of the 11 categories along with a B and three A's. Um, some pluses, some minuses in there. But he's not somebody who's particularly weak in, in too many areas and, you know, if you can be good at a couple things and you can use those things a lot, and as a point guard, playmaking and perimeter defense are, are two things you have to do quite a bit, that's a positive player. The defense with Rubio is interesting to me because earlier you made the call out about, you know, just because you play with Rudy Gobert, for instance, you know, your defense wouldn't be so good. And and Rubio literally did do that last season. So talk a little bit about what makes us confident that we can kind of isolate Rubio's uh, perimeter defense in Utah away from a player like Rudy Gobert and put him in a situation where he's now going to be playing with a much younger center uh, behind him and DeAndre Ayton and still be confident that, you know, he can play good perimeter defense, that he can make those reads? It's it's a good question. And I think what I can point to is if you just look at Rubio's entire career, he's been a B-plus career per defender. He's got B, A-minus, B, B-plus, A-minus, A-minus grades. Um He's been able to do that, and he's, I mean, he's not a good interior defender, but but as far as what he does on the perimeter, he does it well, and at least with our math in particular, we adjust for things like that, um, like what you mentioned. So I would expect that as he changes situations, the stability of that metric would remain pretty strong, and we wouldn't see any sort of large drop-off. Now, when you take him out of a situation like that, the the optics of it may be a little bit different. There may be less times where when he does get beaten, he, he doesn't have that guy to cover. Hopefully, Aiton gets that point. But Aiton is certainly not close to where Rudy Gobert is as an interior defender. Gobert is, I think, either number one or number two in that metric for us. 
so in in that sense, you may see a little bit of a drop off watching the games, um, just because there are more opportunities where when he gets beat, he'll it'll it'll actually result in a basket. But his performance on its own probably shouldn't change all that much. And our metric is is at least attempted to design to try to capture that sort of uh, changing in scenario, but similar performance from the player, similar talent. You know, Suns fans have been talking a lot about what is the best way to optimize Ricky Rubio because in Minnesota, he tended to run a lot of pick and rolls. He was a guy that ran up and down the court. They really focused on transition. He held the ball a lot. Let's just say that. But in Utah, there was a lot of sharing the ball. There was a lot of ball movement. They tried to run that beautiful basketball game that was made famous as a guy who can focus on the X's and O's. Rubio not being a great shooter, what what do you think is the best way to optimize him with Devin Booker? Now, a lot of people think Devin Booker needs to be more of a point guard, but his shooting percentages are affected dramatically by handling the ball a little too much, and I think there is an element of off-ball threat that is lost when Devin Booker holds the ball a little too much, and uh, there's no off-ball threat with Rubio or a much more mitigated off-ball threat with Ricky Rubio. What do you think the best way to optimize Ricky Rubio in this offense would be? So I would say if, if he needs the ball, give him the ball. You don't want to have him dribbling for, for 20 seconds. But if he has the ball in his hand for a little bit and it's while action is happening away from him, whether it be Devin Booker running off of a flare screen or an elevator or pin down or something like that, he can have the ball in his hands and, and you can trust him to be able to make those types of reads. Um, I would say something like that. You can put him in pick and roll. Um, one big thing, at least for me, one of my big points of emphasis schematically is when you have something happening on ball, I want something happening weak side as well. Because if Ricky Rubio is running pick and roll and he is able to get into the paint, but you can have help defense, you know, shuffle over and, and contest and he needs to kick out and then you're running a scramble drill, you might end up with nothing. But if you can have Ricky Rubio running a pick and roll and get into the lane and then weak side, you have a, a flare screen for Devin Booker. If that help defense does still come, Devin Booker is going to be wide open. And if they do stick with Booker, that help defense won't be there. And you can make somebody like Rubio, who has a C-plus finishing grade, C-minus finishing grade against point guards with a 1,000 minutes, look more like a, a B, B-plus finisher. So I think it's finding those opportunities to take someone like him who has a an average skill set as a one-on-one player and as a finisher and trying to just milk the most out of those through big picture having having good scheme if if you need booker off ball more put booker off ball more if rubio is not a threat off ball try to try to keep him on ball but try to allow your offense to still have the same amount of of threat and pressure on the defense through those off ball actions so that's something that you can do with a guy like him who can play make going back to to Ubre, uh in in we might talk about frank kaminsky in a little bit Kaminsky somebody that can play make from the post pretty well. I think he's really underrated in that sense. He's somebody you can get the ball to and then have Ubre run over and set a, a split cut flare screen for Booker and then Ubre cuts to the rim. And if the defense switches, Ubre should be wide open. If the defense doesn't switch, you have a good chance that Devin Booker's open for three. So you can have that happening on one side of the court while Kaminsky's got the ball in the post and on the other side of the court, Ricky Rubio setting a pin down or, or coming off of a flare screen or something like that. So it's it's finding ways not just to move the ball. I think there's a lot of emphasis on you know passing and having guys stand at the perimeter, but those things by themselves don't do all that much. You need to have functional spacing and pressure on the defense through action. And that's where I think Rubio's decent enough abilities finishing fit into that. 
And on ball, his passing ability helps him be somebody that you can run these types of plays with two different reads because you've got two different screens happening at once. Um, get, and, and you can have him run that sort of offense. I mean, I, I really like that answer in particular because I, you know, don't have the grades on hand, but at least, you know, I know if you just look at basketball reference, you just look at the shooting data on NBA.com as well. Rubio has gotten a lot better finishing at the rim uh, over the past several years, particularly once he got to Utah. And I don't think that's the type of thing. I mean, Tim, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he seems like much more of an off-ball threat now than he was in his Minnesota days just by virtue of having that potential cutting and finishing ability, uh, <laughs> even if the three-point shot has never really evolved. Absolutely. Whereas a few years ago, I mean, it was really just nothing. And, and so it made more sense to keep the ball in his hands all the time. Uh, I think you can get a good balance between him and Booker handling it in Phoenix. Yeah, let me throw some, some grades at you. 2014, 2015, he had an F finishing grade versus all players. Then it goes to a D minus, a D minus, a D, and then a C plus. So that would indicate real growth, and it's certainly trending in the right direction. If that C plus from last year is is an outlier year and he's more of a D finisher, you can do a little bit less with him. But if that C plus is real, and, and, and I mean, based on his age, based on our expected growth curves and the, the trajectory he's had, I'd say there's a very real chance that C plus is legitimate. And if it's not a C plus, it's a C. And that's good enough. Whereas in the past, like you said, you can't throw an F finisher out there and, and expect him to be able to effectively run in the pick and roll and and he can't shoot all that well and he can't finish at the rim. So that's that's not a good recipe. But when he can at least give you one of those things, that's somebody that you can have off ball in positions to be some sort of threat to cut um, and then on ball, you know, finishing off of screens, drives. And, and again, we, we know he's a great playmaker, so you can have the ball in his hands in that way. All right, guys, we're back to talk about Harry's. Blue Wire is teaming up with Harry's to make sure our listeners are shaving comfortably. Go to harrys.com slash blue wire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. You get all of that for just $3 shipped right to your door. Enough with the cheap razors. It's totally worth trying Harry's. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who've tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, harrys.com slash blue wire to redeem your razor for $3. You know, the other guys that, that were signed, Ubre and Rubio are obvious starters or likely to be obvious starters on this team. But there were other guys on the margins, I think, that we should talk about as well. Frank Kaminsky, you brought him up. Aaron Baines was also signed to the Suns, the oldest player now on the Phoenix Suns. How do you feel about those two guys, and what does the data say about those two? So Frank isn't somebody that I would have any degree of confidence in from a defensive <laughs> standpoint. Uh, it, and this is where being able to filter the grades is really valuable. And, and that's why I love, and you guys have seen this, playing around on the different spreadsheets we have. You can say, okay, what does Frank look like overall? What does he look like versus, I don't know, bigs or versatile bigs or 
power forwards or centers or, you know, you can take a, a small forward and say, hey, what would LeBron James look like compared to centers? And, and you can filter in different ways or with different minutes. With Kaminsky, if you compare him with bigs who've played at least a thousand minutes, his defensive grades drop to an F, an F, and an F. Um, so <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll throw a little jab out there and say, as, as Suns fans, you might be used to having uh, somebody out there who can give you a little bit of offense <laughs> and not quite all that much defense. But with, with Frank Kaminsky, in order to justify having a defensive anchor that's just that poor, you need to have the ball in his hands a ton offensively. Because defensively, let's, let's say you know, the, the attacks are spread pretty evenly. About 20% of the time, you're going to be attacked. And as, the, as the, a big, as a power forward or a center, that 20% is probably a little bit higher because you're, you're part of the plays more. You're trying to defend the rim. Offensively, if you're not getting the ball 20 to 25% at least and then providing excess value there, there's just no way that math adds up, and there's no way you can really be a positive player. And Frank Kaminsky, when he, we, we look at his skill set offensively, he is a good shooter. He's got a, a C-plus grade versus Biggs with 1,000 minutes. That's a B. So he's somebody you can have stand in the corner just fine. He's pretty good uh, finishing on, you know, if, if you run like a flare screen or a pin in or something like that, not where he's sprinting off of a pin down, but if you get somebody in the way and he has to move a couple feet to the side, he can collect his feet and shoot. Um, but he's not a good finisher. He's got a D there compared to Biggs. He's not somebody who's going to roll all that well. He's a D there, but he can pick and pop. Um, he's a, still a very good post player as he was at Wisconsin, but he's somebody that you can give the ball to and have him play me. So I think there are more options with Kaminsky offensively because you can have him stand off in the side and shoot. You can have him stand in the post and facilitate or score. Um, he's just not like a, he's, he, he's not a vertical threat. He's not going to be a pick and roll guy that's going to run downhill on you. But in the short roll, he can make those quick reads. So offensively, he's fine. I like him. Just defensively, he's just so bad. So it's it's tough to see how that can be a positive player. And what about Aaron Baines? So Baines is uh, a little bit better. Well, I won't say a little bit. He's much better defensively uh, from from defending the interior standpoint. He's got an A grade there, an A minus versus Biggs with a thousand minutes. Um, not a good perimeter defender, but I mean that's not expected. Uh, a decent post player. He has decent shooting. He's got C plus shooting, C plus playmaking, and C roll gravity compared to Biggs with a thousand minutes. Um, but it's another guy that isn't a good finisher. He's an F one on one player. He's in the third percentile. So it's somebody that I mean, you're not going to run any offense through him. You're not going to have him passing at all. He's not really good enough that you can just stick him off in the corner and and feel great about it. You can do it, and he's, he's got a good enough shooting grade, and, and you know that's what Boston did for several years. Um, and, and he may have had a little bit of a playoff blip where he shot a lot better than he did for seasons, so that may not be expected. But offensively, he's a really tough fit. I like Kaminsky better. Defensively, though, Baines can give you some interior defense, and that's something that Kaminsky just cannot bring. So with Baines, defensively, you feel a little bit better about him. Offensively, he's either going to be in the post trying to score for himself or probably stuck in the corner and not a whole lot else. Maybe picking and rolling. With regard to Kaminsky, I mean, this is something Mike and I have talked about a lot. I think the reality of the Suns bench situation, especially if Kelly Oubre is now poised to start, uh, I think Kaminsky is going to get the ball in his hands uh, for better or worse. Just like you said, that would maybe be his optimal role on offense uh, because the Suns 
they've got Tyler Johnson. You know, he's a decent bench player. But outside of that, I don't think Cam Johnson or Ty Jerome are going to be all too ready for a major usage role as rookies. Mikhail Bridges certainly can create for himself. As you just said, Aaron Baines uh, is not a self-creator either. So I think we might see a lot of Frank Kaminsky in an offensive role this year in Phoenix. And, and I'm really kind of curious to see how it plays out. We know the shooting is there. Uh, I am somewhat impressed by his playmaking. And another thing that I do like about James Jones's offense is that I think Dario Saric, who we expect to start a power forward, uh, also has a little bit of playmaking to his game. Uh, but I'm just, you know, not sure if Frank Kaminsky is really kind of your second option off the bench, how that's going to turn out. I would say the best way with with the names that you just named to optimize that. And actually, you have a couple guys who have run this type of offense would be throw the ball in Kaminsky's hands, let him be in the mid or low post, and then have those guys run off of screens or run a delay set where, you know, Ty Drone dribbles up the floor, passes it off to Kaminsky at the top of the key, and then you have pin downs or flare screens or whatnot. Ty Drone coming out of Virginia, they're, I think, the second highest frequency of off-ball screens of any team in college basketball. The the mover blocker offense they ran at Virginia, he was very, very good at. He understands how to read the defense and can get himself open in that way. He's not a creator in the sense that he's going to create his own shot on ball, but off ball, he can be a threat there. And if you have somebody like Baines out there setting those screens, that's that's fine. Um, and then with Cam Johnson, that's another guy who at University of North Carolina, he was an, just an excellent three-point shooter, unless I'm mixing up my my players. You're right. Um, and it's been a little while. Is yes. that correct? No. Okay. Yeah. If he's if he's who I'm remembering he was, this is an excellent three-point shooter. Another guy that they would run off of a lot of screens. And UNC didn't run a lot of off-ball action, but when they did, it was for Cam Johnson. And when it was for Cam Johnson, it went in. So though that pairing of those two players with Jerome and Johnson, I think fit well with a big like Kaminsky that can make some of these passes. And then worst case scenario, if Kaminsky is in the post when he's trying to facilitate, he can he, he's, you know, <laughs> an A post player. Um, and I'd rather have that than try to have Ty Jerome create something or Cam Johnson create off the dribble or Aaron Baines do anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of what we've been talking about, Sam and I lately, is how much of the ceiling of this team going forward is based on uh, DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker. I think they did not go for any stars here. What they tried to do was build a real team around Devin Booker for the first, really the first time in his career. He hasn't really had a lot of NBA caliber players around him. And it seems like going forward, this is what it's going to be. They're really buying into the idea of Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton being stars. Something that your data does uh, is actually try to plan out the plot out the actual growth of young players. Um, What do you feel about Devin Booker? What do you feel about specifically Booker first? And his growth going forward, how good do you think Devin Booker can be? So Booker's somebody that... um as we look at his expected growth from a, an impact standpoint, this is the, the PIPM that we're talking about again, we will look at how we expect somebody to impact the game again based off of their age and, and those age growth curves. Um, and then from that, we can even come up with percentages that we think, you know, he has uh, this percent chance to make the all-star game or this percent chance to be all-NBA or something like that. And somebody who, when we look at that information, he has a, you know, he, he starts off 22% chance next season of being an all-star. And then it goes quickly to 27%, 29%, 31%. And, and in his age 26 season, that's about when it peaks. And then it, it 
drops back down from 31 to 29 to 27. So it's it's not like a, any sort of steep decline, but there is a modest but you know real chance that in a couple years he can be impactful enough that he can be an all-star caliber guy. Uh, a, a big part of this, and what I'll say is his offense is it's already kind of there. It's just that his defense is so negative that his overall impact is mitigated quite a bit. Um, he's a guy that I think there's a much higher chance he becomes an all-star than these data than these uh, data points would suggest just because when we're picking all-stars, it's probably not going to be weighing defense as much as it should be when we're, you know, the media is voting on people. So if he has a, you know, a 31% chance, I'd say that's more like a 50, 55, 60% chance um, because that means his offense is to the point where it's 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 there. It's just the defense is that bad, and I don't think we're going to weigh the defense as much with voting as as it will with the data. Um, if we talk about specific areas, he grows or he's expected to grow from a, a grade standpoint. It's it's pretty modest. Um, this upcoming season, we expect his one on one grade to grow from the ninety second percentile to, to the ninety sixth percentile. Um, he's finishing from the eighty fifth percentile to the eighty ninth percentile, and we expect him to be a bit better as a rebounder. But other than that, nothing huge, nothing drastic. He's not 19. He's not going to grow leaps and bounds. Um, but he's still already in a very good place offensively and can do quite a bit, whether it be finishing or playmaking or attacking one-on-one or catching and shooting. So that part of it's there. What I'll say is the bad news is that defensively, and in particular with our perimeter defensive grade, we have found that with guards, it's something you either have or you don't have. Um there's very, very little growth seen year over year with guards when it comes to a printer defense, and it doesn't really matter how young you are. So from that standpoint, I would say that it would be foolish to think that he'll go from an F compared to guards with a thousand minutes played to like a C in the next couple of years. That's, that's unrealistic to me, and I would bet a lot of money that doesn't happen. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. You can be optimistic. Um, the offense is there, man. The, the offense is there. The, the reality is the offense probably won't grow a whole lot, um, <laughs> but a lot of it's there already. It's just the defense is just such a question mark. With the defense, I'm going to throw out an argument that I don't necessarily believe, but I know a lot of people listening to this probably do. People come up to you and they say, it doesn't matter if Devin Booker's um, defensive PIPM is you know, among the worst for guards of the league because the Suns have had a negative culture over the past several years. They've consistently been placing Booker in blowout situations surrounded by teammates who obviously don't care. So why would he care himself? It's not really a statistical argument, but I'm curious what your rebuttal would be to that. So that is something, that's an argument that you can see play out if you look at raw, you know, on-off data. You can, you can say, hey, you know, his teammates weren't trying or he was in a bad lineup or this team overall was bad. The quality of teammates and the quality of opponents and the almost the interactive nature of, you know, this four-man lineup plus Booker compared to this four-man lineup plus whoever his backup is. Those are things that PIPM looks at. Those are things that real plus minus looks at. And those are things that it will adjust for. So him playing in a lot of garbage time or in a lot of minutes with bad players or in situations where they're down a lot of points shouldn't it it may but it shouldn't have much of an impact at all on his PIPM and I think the reality when you look at 
his his any of his impact stats. They all align. They're all in in agreement. He's not a good defender. He's a very negative defender. And when that lines up with our grade data as well, and even if you watch film, and, and defense is really tough to to gauge, especially watching live. But watching the film on him, it doesn't scream, you know, hey, this is just a bad situation for him. So that's that's what I would say. Some of the things that you covered, and in, in some of the things people might be saying, are are covered in the data that we're looking at. Um, if he were to make a big jump, it would just be unprecedented. And if you look at players who have been on bad teams in bad situations, the defensive grades for us are still pretty stable. And we don't see massive jumps year to year because, oh, you know what? He was, the team was winning more games, so he got better. Um, you'll still have bad, good defenders on bad teams, bad defenders on good teams. A lot of that, you know, when a team's winning, we'll just have our rose-colored glasses on and ignore it a little bit. Or if the team's losing, we might make excuses, but players play the way they play. And I think if you watch the film, it, it aligns pretty well with that. Now, the other guy that the Suns front office is treating like a star at this point or expecting to be a star at some point in his career is DeAndre Ayton. Now, you specifically talked about how with guards, you don't see massive jumps in defense or, or even... Uh, big improvements in defense that you just kind of are what you are. Is that different for big men? Or, and how do you see DeAndre in growing and developing? So he's someone that uh, it, it's interesting. When we talk about the growth curves, they differ each, each year, each age, and they will differ. And we, lo- we look at it guards versus wings versus bigs. Um, when we look at Aiden and we look at his interior defense in particular, that's still something that we expect to grow. He was in the 74th percentile overall versus all players. That's a B plus this past season. If we compare him to bigs with a thousand minutes played, that B plus goes to a D. And I think that's probably more in line with, with what you would be expecting. But that 74th percentile is expected to grow to the 77th percentile next year, 80th percentile after that, and then the 82nd, 84th, 85th. And then it'll, you know, it's, it's slowly uh, decelerating as the velocity goes up a little bit and then it'll hit a peak and then go back down. Um, so there's some modest growth expected, nothing drastic, and nothing that would make me say, hey, he was a D as an interior defender versus Biggs with a 1,000 minutes last season. I think he's going to be a B next year. So he's, he's probably never going to be a defensive anchor in that respect, um, but he's still young, and we still expect him to grow a little bit. Offensively, I think you can have a little bit more hope. Um, his one-on-one grade in particular for his age and his position, we expect to grow quite a bit from the 62nd percentile to the 73rd percentile. Um, we expect him to make a lot of, you know, three to four percentile jumps in post-play, rolling, rebounding, playmaking, nothing drastic, but just some solid growth. He's a young player. He'll be getting better. Uh, I guess what he would hang his hat on moving forward would be his A finishing grade, um, his B post-play grade, his B minus one-on-one grade that we're expecting to get better um, by a substantial margin, and the fact that he's already a very good rebounder. And what about Kelly Oubre? Now, looking at Kelly, we talked a little bit about him earlier. Do you? How much do you anticipate him getting better uh, going forward? And you know, obviously, two years is not a long time. But what what does the data look like for him as far as improving? It doesn't look too encouraging. Um, he's about at the point where <laughs> I don't want to say he's peaked, but he's at the point in the curve where it's it's close to plateaued. Um, and each of the skill sets hits this at different points in time. And in, in, in particular for different positions, but he's at the point where pretty much across the board, he might go a little bit here and there, but I would say that he was last year who we should expect him to be the next two or three seasons with, with, you know, minor differences here and there. Um, 
he's he's in his athletic peak as he grows. I'm sure his his IQ will get a little bit better and his athleticism will get a little bit worse. Um, but he's he's who he is, and I wouldn't expect anything different to happen. So then the upshot there, the other guy we haven't included yet is Mikhail Bridges, and you don't need to throw out all the data if you don't have it on hand. Um, but I do know your data likes Mikhail Bridges a lot, um, possibly even more than Devin Booker in, in some instances. If there are no outliers and if these guys um, really grow according to how they're expected to grow based on these curves, what do you think the ceiling is for a team where you know maybe Devin Booker is such a great offensive player but doesn't really ever put the defense together and, and maybe DeAndre Ayton is actually the number one option on that team or, or the most impactful overall player and then you have a guy like Mikhail Bridges thrown in. You know, If no other star comes in for the outside, what does that core really grow into a few years from now? I think you would want to look at the kind of like the, the the archetypes of the players that you have. And in this player's peak form, based on where their strengths are now, if we expect those strengths to get better over time and we don't expect DeAndre Aiden to suddenly become a great three-point shooter, you've got a good roller, a good post player, good rebounder in Aiden. That is a number one option, unless you're just a dominant post player generally isn't good news for a team if that's your number one guy. Um, if your number one guy is Devin Booker, even your number two guy is Devin Booker, and he's an excellent shooter, or, or if he can return to that excellent shooting form, um, and you can have him running off of screens, and he can even handle the ball a bit, that offensively is is solid. But defensively, the just the floor is so low that it's tough to say what the overall impact would look like. And then, like we said, we don't expect that to grow a whole lot. So that doesn't look great as a number two option or a number one option. And then if Bridges is your number three guy, I think he's somebody that if we look at his grades and we look at the expected growth, we, we would expect him to be a B minus perimeter shooter next year, a very, very good off ball player off of, you know, cutting and then running off of screens. And he's an A there C plus one-on-one player C plus finisher um, B playmaker and already a very, very good defender. That's somebody I can see adequately slotting into a three role where you're your fourth best player on a team. If, if we just talk about, you know, how do you compete? You want to have players in the right slots to provide the right kind of value. Um, bridges as your one or two, that doesn't make sense. Bridges as a three or four with this kind of skill set, that's somebody who compared to the other three or four <laughs> options in the league, that's somebody that can that can perform and, and return value there. Um, so I would say the outlook isn't incredibly bright. I think ideally you'd look to develop these players as well as you possibly can and hope that Monty Williams and his staff can really get some good player development out of these guys. Um, I know that Williams in our, we actually have player development data that looks at players who have played for coaches over multiple years and, and how much they've grown. And for Williams, let me pull it up. He was pretty good when it came to perimeter shooting, I believe. Yeah. Perimeter shooting, off ball movement, interior defense so perhaps that's good news for Aiden um but he was below average with developing post play and playmaking below average one-on-one and 15th percentile perimeter defense um when we compared the growth that players saw under Williams compared to other coaches in our database that goes back to the 2013-2014 season so that's not good news for Booker um but if Williams can make the most out of Aiden as a interior defender he can make the most out of Booker and Bridges as you know, guys running off of screens and shooting well, it's, I don't know. 
I don't want to, <laughs> I'm trying to find the, the, the bright side of the situation here, but it's, it's a situation that doesn't look great if you want this team to be competing with that set of three players in those kinds of roles. Right. Well, I think I can, I can handle the bright side part. <laughs> As somebody who talks about this team all the time, I think what you're describing is a team that needs to overperform based on their the players that they have currently and show out as far as developing these guys going forward because what they've done recently is protect cap space in the future. And if you can show that these players are developing un- under Monty Williams, what you can do is... Uh, use that cap space to help improve the team in the future. I've talked about it in the past. I think the absolute ceiling for this team would be getting at least one other guy that's better than either DeAndre Ayton or Devin Booker. That's how you compete for a championship with those two guys. You need an absolute star around them in the future. That's why I focused so much this offseason on trying to get stars instead of just building a team around Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. If you build a team around Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, what you need is a really good showing for these guys because that cap space, cap space could matter going forward for a young team. I think that's why it's vital that they protected cap space either this coming off season with about $30 million that they create, can create or even the season after when Kelly Oubre's deal is over and they can easily create around $40 million in cap space. It's vital for them to perform really well. I think it's unrealistic, as we've talked about, Sam, to expect playoffs in this next season. That's not something that we should expect, but I think expecting a team to perform a lot better than they have in the past and maybe even prove that the culture could potentially get better going forward. One season means nothing for culture. Multiple seasons, I think, is where you start to actually prove that things can change. Um, And then that cap space could help you uh, be flexible in the future, either with even moving some of those young guys to help create space for other players or, or, you know, we've talked a lot about the Jimmy Butler trade for Philadelphia, which maybe isn't the greatest example now that he signed somewhere else, but it got him Josh. <laughs> it got him Josh Richardson, and it got him the ability to sign Al Horford. So it still worked out for them in the end. Um, but I think those are the types of things that you hope for a young team. It takes a long time to get better, especially at the position like DeAndre Ayton plays, and even Devin Booker. There's a lot of pressure on him going forward. So I think that's the upshot for this team uh, for for a lot uh, for for the, the most hopeful of Suns fans. I'll say. Now, you talked a little bit about uh, you have some coaching um, data as well. It's not just player data. You, you talked a little, about, a, a little bit about Monty Williams. And, of course, you come from that background. What are your impressions of Monty Williams? How do you feel about him? He was in the 80th percentile offensively and the 20th percentile defense. So defensively, his roster is underperforming. Offensively, they overperform their talent. And I will say that we only have two seasons of data in here because our database in the 2013-2014 season. Since that period of time, he's had time on other staffs. He's worked with the Sixers. He's maybe maybe grown. He might be doing different things than we saw in the past. But if he does the same stuff schematically that he did that got him that talent grade, or I'm sorry, optimization rating, I think it would be lower in today's NBA. Because when we eighty. When you look at those, the, the film from those seasons, there wasn't a lot of great spacing. Um, a lot of that offense was tailored for Anthony Davis. And so it's tough to figure out how that would directly translate to the Suns roster. Um, but the, but this is one of the few instances where I say, hey, it's pretty old. It was a different era. There wasn't as much of a focus on you know 3 and D or even you know getting to the three-point line we had a bigs popping or spotting up at the two like inside the three-point line so it's a little bit of a different game and options as to how the offense would translate and i would expect him to be more in like the 
30th to 50th percentile than the 80th percentile. But the, da- the data likes him, but I don't trust it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said in the past before, too, Monty's offense going forward is going to be a huge question mark if we're just basing it on uh, what his offense looked like in New Orleans because that wasn't really the modern era. The NBA has changed so much in just the past five years. The good news, though, I think, is that if the data is good and we're projecting forward improvement, we're not just projecting improvement based on taking Monty Williams and comparing him to an average coach. We're actually comparing him to Igor Kokoshkov last season. And again, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Igor Kokoshkov might have been the worst coach, might have been right there at the bottom among the worst coaches, plural, uh, in both offense and defensive uh, optimization, which would suggest actually that the Suns won 19 games last year, but maybe based on talent grades alone, uh, you actually thought that team should have been a little bit better than they performed. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And generally, um, and I'll let you guys weigh on the weigh in on this. We will see big, you know, jumps or drops in data based on if teams are tanking. We'll see, you know, coaches who are consistently in like the 50th percentile suddenly jump to the 15th percentile for a year because they were tanking. And these ratings account for injuries. They account for trades. They account for minutes played. So it wouldn't even be like, hey, we were benching a guy and the team played worse. It would be based on the players you actually put out on the court. How did they perform? And you can see tangible differences in scheme. I don't know if that was the case with the Suns. Um, but like you said, he bottom of the league offensively and defensively. Yeah, I don't know that it was either. I mean, there was a little TJ Warren chicanery, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure if he needed to sit out the whole <laughs> sit out the whole rest of the season from when he was injured. But uh, beyond that, I don't know that there was a ton of that. Um, there was some injuries that happened, but it sounds like if your data actually accounts for those injuries, then it should have accounted for that, I would say. And I don't think mm-hmm. that that's beyond uh, reality based on what we saw last season. So I think replacing one of the worst coaches is is probably a good offseason to start. It's a good place to start. But we also replaced some of the worst players that we could possibly replace. And I think that's an important point to talk about before we let you go, uh, Tim. Your data did not like Dragon Bender, Josh Jackson, or Jamal Crawford very much, did it? It did not, especially not the uh, PIPM data, looking at the impact of those three guys. Dragon Bender, negative 1.7, negative 3.7, negative 1.9. He, he had two, two years of impact that we would consider a bench player, and then one that was he actually had negative wins attributed to him he was like below replacement level essentially <laughs> I mean, if we look at josh jackson he was a negative four negative 3.8 and a negative four um or i'm sorry negative four negative 3.8 that gave him about four wins lost not wins added <laughs> wins lost in in those two years um and he's actually expected to produce 12 million dollars worth of value over the next seven years combined um, which isn't, isn't close to the minimum contract. Yeah. So our data does not like him from his impact. I will say, so, so Dragon Better, his, his grades are not good. Um, he can finish <laughs> well, maybe, and that's it. Lots of Ds, lots yeah. of Fs. Um, with Josh Jackson, there's some hope there. Um, he's somebody who has some Bs here and there a B plus one-on-one grade, a B, B uh, playmaking grade, not a good shooter, not at all a good finisher, decent defensive grades. Um, so there may be some hope there. There's a big differential between the impact and the talent grades. Um, so perhaps somebody that could be optimized better, put into a better situation moving forward. Um, but 
again, hasn't been a positively impactful player. And then Jamal Crawford is another guy who he used to be good. In 2013-14, he had some pretty good grades. But it quickly <laughs> went downhill to the point where he has F interior and, uh, interior and perimeter defensive grades. He had an F finishing grade. Um, he still had a good perimeter shooting grade his last season, but not not somebody I would really want out there if I'm looking for a positive impact. And based on our data, he, had been a, he hadn't been a positive PIPM guy since the 2012-2013 season. That's very interesting. I think that, to, or I should say Sam and I, have talked a lot about this where we think one of the biggest additions to this team is losing these guys because, as you talked about with Josh Jackson, he basically lost games for us uh, throughout the year, and that's what the data points at. And I think one of the biggest additions is just not no longer playing guys at that level um, below replacement level, just as you talked about. So I think going forward, that's going to be a big thing for Suns fans watching. What does this team look like with NBA players, and how can you improve from there? Um, I do want to talk about you have – some spreadsheets that we have access to that we love. Sam has been using it a lot online and you have, you're able to offer that to people if they want to have access to this information and this data. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So everything that we've talked about today, um, all of our player grades being able to filter in different ways by minutes, by, you know, guards, wings, bigs, or even, you know, point guard, shooting guard, small forward, and so on by offensive roles, um, all of that with the player grades, all of the optimization ratings, all of the player development ratings, all of our PIPM data that goes back into like the 1950s, like, I think. Um, that data goes back forever. All of that is available in our data and tools package on the site. There are 22 different spreadsheets. There's tons of stuff. You guys have seen it. You guys have played around in it. Um, there's a lot you can do a lot of fun stuff that you can play around with. We had our free agency tracker that tracked all of the values on every signing. Um, there's all kinds of stuff. And we're also just constantly adding to it. Um, I've had to retweet. I, I've had to re, I don't mean to retweet. I've had to like retype and tweet new tweets um, explaining the package because it's changed quite a few times over the past month, but there's a ton of data in there and it's only five bucks a month. Um, we have about 90, we have over 90% retention on the purchases. So I'd say that most people seem to think it's a pretty good value. Um, and we're even at the point now where like the data is not changing. <laughs> it, like the season's not happening anymore, but people still continue enjoying it, continue tweeting about it. So feel free to, to ask me about it if you have any questions. My pinned tweet is to uh, like a 30 tweet explanation explaining all the different parts of it, but it's only five bucks a month. All the data is in there. Um, Moving into next season, it'll continue to update. So check that out. That's on Basketball Index, five bucks a month. That's our data and tools package. Yeah, and Tim, you actually created a promo code for us, uh, Timeline. So if you want to go on there and actually sign up, we highly recommend it. It's fun to play around in this data, and it's a lot of data that's not available other places, uh, basically available nowhere. It's it's proprietary. Um, so it's a lot of fun to take a look at some of the information that's available there. Highly recommend it if you want to go on there, uh, enter the promo code Timeline, and uh, it'll give us some credit for, for you going over there and taking a look at it. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Sam, do you have any other questions for Tim before we let him go? Uh, one really important one, Tim. How many wins will the Suns get next year based on your data? Ooh, okay. So our data, and, and again, this is the PIPM projections. So if you don't like this number, yell at Jacob. Uh, give the Suns 30.3 wins and 51.7 losses next year. 
which would be according to our dead last in the the Western Conference. Just my which theory. is an improvement. It is an improvement. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't mean to put a damper on things at all with that. I think that's actually good. Uh, for what it's worth, five thirty eight put out their projections today. Projected us at thirty five. You guys have us at thirty point three. And yet, the first Vegas over under uh, betting lines came out have the Suns at twenty six and a half. So I think that sort of just speaks to you know these players have flaws. You know, maybe we were a little down on some players today, Devin Booker, Kelly Oubre, what have you. But the bottom line is the Suns replaced a lot of non-NBA players with NBA caliber players. And these advanced models, uh, you know, for one, Tim's in the first place, uh, and Jacobs should give him credit for since it's PIPM, actually, uh, have the Suns improving a lot next season. And uh, that that is good news for Suns fans. It is good news. And it actually, uh, you didn't just replace non-NBA quality guys with NBA quality guys. You also added some good players from a draft standpoint. And we also, in that $5 data and tools package, have our college PIPM data. So you can pull up any college team since I think year 2000 and and look at their data. We have a leaderboard in there. And you guys drafted a couple of good college players. So if anybody want to take, wants to take a look, again, you can use the, t- uh, the discount code timeline. It'll give you 15% off your first month. Um, you can check out and see exactly how good those college players are that you guys drafted. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to follow Tim on Twitter. It's Tim underscore NBA. He goes by Cranjus McBasketball on Twitter. Uh, Tim, once again, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. And, and I think, hey, having been a Laker tanking fan and, and we're finally done with that, thankfully, having those guys that you can watch grow and get better even when the team's not winning itself, can be a lot of fun. So, you know, embrace this time. Don't turn off the TV. Uh, keep listening to the broadcasts that are using our stats um, and, and try to enjoy these guys as they're getting better. And, and once you get over that hump, hopefully the this time will be even more valuable. Um, and, and as a Laker fan, having traded away all of our young players, it's a very, like, I don't know, empty feeling because because that journey is gone. All of that hard work is gone. But hopefully you guys can take these young pieces and build towards that that growth. And in a couple of years, you guys can have me back on and I'll tell you that you're projected at, you know, 45, 50 wins. So what made the Suns attractive to you? My favorite color is purple. <laughs> no, but no, honestly, <laughs> man, it's just it was a, James, you know, James found me in D.C. You know, he, he gave me an opportunity and, you know, it's just been a, a blessing ever since. Um. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends whose four way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.